You are listening to selfdiscoverymedia.com, where illumination and inspiration is but a click away. With so many genre topics for you on everything that you need to know in life, we celebrate and share the people who have taken the journey before you and who are now here to serve you with their wisdom and their knowledge. The next show coming up is... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Jay Westbrook. Compassionate dying, the journey of compassionate dying, dying with grace. We give so much attention to people being born, celebration of it, a lot of care, and a lot of time to bring that child into the world. But when people are going, it seems to be something that need to do in a hurry and who's by their side? Are they doing it gracefully, compassionately? It can be a scary thing to let go, even if people are ready for death. It doesn't just happen like that. Well, I don't know, sometimes it does. But for those that are actually facing death, know that it's coming. Having some compassion, having some, some dignity is something that we need to give. And this is Jay's department. He is a compassionate person who shows people how to journey over into death. He works with all people, including prisoners, anybody that is needing to cross over that is afraid of it, how to do it compassionately. And boy, do we need that. We need a lot more compassion in our living Never mind in our dying right now. But let's start with this today. Welcome to the show, Jay. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, first and foremost, how did you get into this? Because this is not something that one grows up and goes, I'm going to help the dying. Uh, the, the short answer is I didn't get into veterinary college. But I had been working for, for my undergraduate career part-time at a veterinary hospital and I was pulled to that work. I was the guy with no training who was out in the parking lot doing seat of my pants grief counseling mm. with people whose dog had been hit by a car. They had had the dog euthanized and they were just sobbing in the parking lot. Yeah. And then when I didn't get into veterinary college, I got a master's degree in gerontology, aging and mm -hmm. counseling. I got an RN and uh, very quickly started on the path to work in hospice and palliative care. I think I did a year first in oncology, cancer care, and a year in pain management, hospital-based pain management, and then made the leap to hospice and palliative care. And that's where I've been ever since. And I stay bedside. I work hands-on with the dying and the grieving. And that's been, without a doubt, that's my skill level, and that's where I bring the greatest gifts. The purpose was chosen for you, wasn't it? I mean, it's had you gotten to veterinary school, it might have taken you down a different journey, being out in that parking lot, seeing how much it's needed to be there for people at that time. It's a crisis. It's a drama, trauma for them. They've lost a family member. And, you know, and how do you deal with death? And... We need people there that don't say, oh, suck it up. Oh, they were old or they were that. They need people to help them through the grieving process at that time. It is a loss. It's a loss for people. And we should respect that loss, shouldn't we? It doesn't matter if it's a mouse or if it's a person. We should respect what it means to the person. 
of course. We sh uh, I'm always a little wary of the word, the S word, should. <laughs> yes. You would hope would be so. respectful if we did. <laughs> you would hope so. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the, the tools that our culture provides take us away from that. They're very intellectual. Mm. They're a set of tools that tend to not work, but they're taught from generation to generation and within the culture. And, and they're, they have to do with minimizing, usually minimizing the loss. And you said, well, he was old. Yep. Another thing people, well, you should be glad you had him so long. Well, I am, but what does that have to do with my grief? Yes. Or the things we're taught from childhood. Don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll get you a new one. Right. So you have you lose a puppy or a bicycle or a doll, and the response is, don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll replace the loss. We'll get you a new one. Even when you're 10 or 11 and, and the first time your heart goes pitter-patter, you've got puppy love. Mine was 11 years old. She was Pamela. We had a relationship. Mm -hmm. It spanned, I think, two or three days. And she may not have known we were in a relationship, but I knew we were. Yeah. And I knew it was over when I saw her with Jimmy Rao. Mm -hmm. I still remember his name. And I went home with that look on my face. And mom said, don't feel bad. There are plenty of fish in mm -hmm. the sea which is the puppy love version of on Saturday, we'll get you yeah. replace the loss. Yeah. We'll compare the loss. Oh, well you lost a child. I know somebody who had two children mm -hmm. die trying to minimize the significance of the loss for me or just give it time. Time heals all wounds. Right. And it doesn't. No. Grief, grief is cumulative and it's patient, and it stays until it's addressed. And that's the big thing, isn't it, addressing it? You know, we're, we're as a society, as you said, it's suck it up. Um, you know, they've had their time, and, uh, you know, all things come to an end. But it's the relationship that you've had with that person it is an intricate part of you. It's part of your DNA now. And when somebody passes over, however they've done it, whether it is, the end of their time or it's sudden it's like a piece of you has gone with them and there's a gaping hole there I mean my dog passed three years ago I miss her desperately why because she was my best friend I could tell her everything she understood everything she was there for me completely it was her time I gave her a beautiful death um, but at the same time you know I gave her that beautiful respectful death that um, that you do for humans I did for her and I'm so grateful that I did that because it's literally eye to eye as she crossed over but that doesn't mean that that loss I still don't feel that I still don't miss her you know there is going to be no substitute for her and I think this is the big word isn't it we will substitute your loss with something else you can't substitute someone can you, you cannot you cannot and and what should we try? We try and do. And the, mm. the term you use to suck it up, and we mm. that's pretty universal in this culture. We use different wording. Um, big girls don't cry, mm -hmm. which is sort of a, a gentler version of suck it up. 
or well, you're the man to a seven-year-old. You're the man of the family now. Right. You need to be strong for your mother and your sisters. And you, we're telling a seven-year-old that he has to be the man of the family when he's not. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There, there is a lot of that misinformation and the wishing, almost always wishing that the relationship had been better or different mm -hmm. or more. Maybe yeah. it was a perfect relationship, but I want them still here. Yeah. So we often want or usually want better, different or more, and they're no longer here. We go to them, want to go to them one more time, and they're just not there. And as you said earlier, there, was, there is no time on grief. You know, as you go, it may lessen. You learn to move on in life. And, um, you know, you learn to be productive or do whatever you're doing. But that still doesn't mean that you have that moment where you remember that person and the tears come again and the heartache is felt again. That's always going to be. It might lessen in the pain, but that, that loss is always going to be a loss, isn't it? Yeah. The loss remains. The grief does mm. not have to. Right. The painful reaction rather than a sweet or even bittersweet memory, the, the grief is, is the really profound sadness that disrupts sleep and mm. eating and focus and memory and concentration and our, our willingness to open our hearts, to be vulnerable, to engage, to trust, to be playful or spontaneous. All of those things get taken away by the grief. And unless somebody does the grief recovery work on whatever that loss is, they're unlikely to have those symptoms go away, even if they're functioning. Yeah. They're still functioning in the world. They drive to work. They do this and that. But they're kind of going through the motions. And there's that under undercurrent of sadness and dysfunction and unhappiness that they can't get past. You see this a lot with widows or widowers, people who have lost people in a relationship, you know, and people say, well, you know, it's been so many years. Don't you want to move on? Don't you want to find love again? Well, if they haven't dealt with the grief, if they haven't dealt with the loss, you know, they're still in memory of what they've lost. And so how can they ever open their heart or, or their mind to anybody else? Because they're still there in the death and in the memory. Absolutely. It's very interesting with the, uh, I don't know about the UK, but here in the States, we see about a 10% of the population has what's called substance use disorder, alcoholism mm -hmm. or addiction, 10% of the adult population, but 70% higher in the mature adult. So it's 17% rather than 10% in that population. And when you look at that population, so much of that uh, substance abuse is late onset and driven by grief and loneliness. Drowning out the sorrows, right? Yeah. Mm. Crawling into a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. And we see it so often. Why is it as a human society, you know, you do see certain cultures where they do openly grieve for their loss, they, the respect of the person sending them on their journey, you know, the support of one another um, as they go through the process. But you see it mostly in Western cultures that, you know, well, the funeral's over now, time to get on with life. Why is it 
that we are so afraid to to be compassionate to be nurturing to help people through the process um what is it about us as a society that we feel that this is the answer you know that we've got to do it all behind closed doors and you know um this is the problem um that we see and why are we like that what's in our culture that makes us like that yeah i, I think it's pretty um recent it may have more to less to do with culture and more to do with the time we live in so not that long ago a hundred years when most families lived multi-generationally within the same home mm -hmm. most death was at home mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me most death was at home it wasn't a stranger you grandpa died upstairs in his bedroom and the family was all there and there wasn't that removal of the dying process from the living process that you see now where 75 percent of deaths occur in a acute care hospital or a nursing home yeah and if it's an icu then only the immediate family is allowed in and only two at a time and only for five minutes. And there's, there's a huge separation and people don't die as gently because mm. we have medical technology that is interested in keeping the body alive at all costs. And so I think there's more suffering. Yes. And not many people are good at are are experienced and therefore comfortable being with suffering they want to fix it change it stop yes. medicate it right and we live in a disposable world and we mm -hmm. live in a world of very very short attention span and no patience change respect so it becomes very difficult for family members to know how to be with dying, to just sit bearing witness with a compassionate presence unless they have a relationship with suffering. I have that double-edged sword of, the, of profound suffering in my background profound suffering from age three on with physical torture and yeah. sexual abuse and living in a pitch black closet wow. for years from age three to six, complete isolation in the dark, sensory deprivation, physical torture, sexual abuse. I developed a very intimate relationship with suffering. Mm. I know how to be with someone who is suffering and not pull away and not try and change unless invited to do so, not trying to change that suffering. And some people don't want their suffering mitigated. No, no. I mean, everything is a process, isn't it? We have to be willing to go through things. We can't come out the other side unless we're willing to go through things. I'm so sorry that you went through all that you went through. Having done many other interviews of people who have gone through similar patterns, the who they became because of the strength and the courage 
um, and also because of the need of knowing what they needed to do. As you said, you became very familiar with grief and with suffering, so therefore you identified it in the parking lot, helping those that had lost the dog. This was always your calling, why you had to go through so much suffering to actually understand it. One doesn't know, but that's the way sometimes things work. But that's what's made you a so good at your job and be so in tuned with what is held on suffering where people are doing it for the attention or people who just simply can't let go because they don't know how they're so consumed by it and it is a process that we have to be willing to go through we can't get through the other side we can't get to that place where we can remember fondly or sadly without the grief unless we're willing to go through the process and so many people can't do it alone they don't know how they don't have the skills they don't have the tools and we need so many more people like yourself out there helping people through it because otherwise we've become very numb not only with our feelings as i said hit the bottle hit the drugs hit anything to numb you so you don't feel the pain but we become very callous right and it doesn't have to be a illegal kind of drinking it can be compulsive working out it yeah. can workaholism where somebody's working 60 70 hours a week it, you know there are diverting their attention diverting their pain yeah but it's consumptive and it distracts them it deflects the pain it distracts them from it and so you see those those kinds of behaviors the other thing that happened for me is that my childhood suffering became my vehicle mm -hmm. for awakening compassion yeah. for me and for me and for others. And, and really knowing at a cellular level that sometimes it's just bearing witness with a compassionate presence, that things don't need to be fixed unless you're invited I'll tell you a story. We had a, I was paged to the oncology unit at the hospital when I was working as, as a palliative care clinician, palliative care and pain management, and went up there. And when I stepped off the elevator, I could hear what sounded like muffled screams. And as I got down the hall, I saw a blanket taped over one of the patient's doors. And from inside, somebody was screaming in agony and I checked the chart and all of the correct pain orders were in place. The docs had written great orders to manage this cancer patient's intense physical pain. Then I looked at the administration record and none had been given. And I asked the nurses why they weren't giving it. And they said, go talk to the patient. And I went in and I did some Tibetan breathing, Tibetan Buddhist breathing, and kind of calmed him down to a point where he could speak. And here's what he said. I committed murder as a young man, and I spent 30 years in the penitentiary. And I've been out now for 13 years, and I know I'm dying. And I know that when I die, God is going to have me suffer horrendously for an eternity. And I just think that if I could suffer enough here physically, it might right the wrong, balance the scales, and maybe in the afterlife I won't suffer as much or as long. And so it was a very intentional yes. decision 
to endure this horrendous pain. And people tried to say, your concept of God is wrong, mm-hmm. which we don't have the right to say. We mm-hmm. can say, have you thought of or considered yes. this loving and forgiving God as opposed to a judgmental and punishing one? He had, and he held on to his kind of Old Testament God. And they said, um, manipulatively, do you realize how upsetting this is for the other patients and their families and the staff? But that wasn't his concern. He had a problem, a solution, and a hope that it would work. And he was imminently dying, and he died in exquisite pain absolutely exquisite agony. And I, I pray that it accomplished what he hoped it would. Right. My job was to be there with a compassionate presence, to bear witness, and to not impose my pain management tools unless and until he yeah. asked me to. That, yeah. So you, you were bearing witness yeah. you know, you were standing beside him on his choice. And you know, this is coming to it is choice of dying. You know, we're seeing now today, you know, people choosing to die because they do have terminal illnesses and they don't want to go out the suffering way. And they have a choice to die in certain states. It's okay. In other places, it's not. Um, there's always the moral question. Again, it comes down to the person should have a right to, to choose their exit. And we should be there compassionately with that person at that time in respect of that choice. And one can always try and, and educate, you know, um, give a different opinion. But again, as you said, this person had made his choice and he was going to stick to it um, no matter what. But there are a lot of people that are afraid of dying. Getting give a story of my mother. She was 95. Her stomach was, I think at that time, riddled with cancer, but no doctor was going to see her because she was at home. It was just nurses and it was bad care. And she wanted to cross over, but she didn't know how to die. And I remember putting out a prayer thing to all my wonderful followers on, on Facebook saying, my mom needs to cross over. She needs that loving energy to help her because I very much believe in energy. It's that same compassionate energy. And it was a rainy day. My sister went to go make a cup of tea. She said she came back and sunlight was coming through, shone on my mother. My mother's eyes and hands were open and she passed over peacefully. And this happened within 24 hours. So the energy of compassion, the energy of love, the energy of being there in that person's um, ascension, Mm -hmm. you know, is something that's really, really something we need to actually understand. Because for some people, I just don't know how to die, but I want to. They don't know how to let go. How do you just suddenly go, oh, okay, I'm going to die now. And they know that they're dying. And I think it could be very traumatizing for certain people. And this is why that compassion is also needed to help calm them down to let go so they can release themselves. Yeah. Uh Certainly. Um, Part of the problem, I think, is the militaristic framing that is pretty universal in healthcare. So you got to fight this. You Mm -hmm. may have lost the battle, but not the war. We got to muster the forces. We're going to do everything we can to defeat this. We have an arsenal of the vocabulary of healthcare and the vocabulary of war are very similar. Yes. So somebody then feels, Ma, you got to eat, you got to build your strength, you got to fight this. 
when in fact as she eats, what she's really doing is feeding the tumor. And it's bigger and faster and more invasively. But food kind of is attached to the idea of love. So the family is saying, eat and build your strength. And it's having the opposite effect. So then the patient may feel guilty for giving up for surrendering again here we go with the four terms so the whole issue of the vocabulary of healthcare being framed in that way not that there is a process and there is a uh, for there is a season for for living and for none of that is in the vocabulary it's very much a battle so if i give up and let go so I can die, I should, I will be shamed, I will be scolded, I will be encouraged to not do that. So it, I'm getting mixed messages, yeah. and I have a desire, but everybody else wants. The other thing is families are crying and going, don't go, yeah. don't leave us, please stay. And even if I want to die, the people that I love and by whom I'm loved are begging me to stay, which is why so often there may be 12 people there bedside at the hospital and then four go home to shower and change and three go to the airport and two go to McDonald's and one goes to pee and there's a 90 second window where mom is alone and that's when she lets go. Right. And the yeah. daughter comes back and says, oh, my God, I knew I shouldn't have peed. Mm-hmm. But no, peeing is good. <laughs> Your mom, here's what happened. Your mom loved you so much and knew how much you loved her that she couldn't let go with you here. And you gave her the most wonderful gift of stepping out of the room so that she could let go. And had she not wanted to, she wouldn't have. So you gave her a tremendous gift and you frame or reframe the experience in a way that allows them to yes. walk away feeling good about what they did rather than beating themselves up for having stepped out of the room. Does that- and the other thing too, we've got to remember for, for people that are in that process of dying, of leaving the body and the, the soul and the spirit moving on, you know, the more peace and love they have around them. Um, when my mother-in-law was dying and I went into hospital to say goodbye, I just stroked the brow. And I know how soothing it was. I could kind of even see that even though she was in a coma, I could see fa- facial you know, features kind of calm down. And stroking the hand, you know, it, it's that sense of just, I'm there for you. Soft voices, I'm there for you. They don't want to hear the crying, oh, no, don't go, because now they're feeling guilty for going and everything else. It's a, it's a process of leaving the body, and it needs to be as peaceful as possible. So when you know someone is going, this is a time I think that we need to come to terms and respect. This person is going. I love them very much. Let's, however much I'm going to grieve, let's respect their time. They're crossing over at this time and be there in that loving energy and harmony for them so they can cross over peacefully. Yeah, yeah there, there's so much. I mean, we've talked about the the vocabulary of dying and what our culture teaches and and doesn't teach and the shaming of people about letting go there. 
we also live, and about the impatience of the time in which we live, we also live in, a, in an era of sound bites. And I hate when I start talking like this. I'm like one of those people who say, and I walked barefoot in the snow uphill to school every day. In your pajamas. <laughs> but when I was growing up, when my brain and thoughts and values were being shaped, I read a lot. Mm -hmm. I read things, mm -hmm. they were called uh, books. <laughs> Here's one, this is what I actually wrote, but they're called books and people read from cover to cover and they listened to lectures mm -hmm. that presented ideas that were foreign, that they agreed with, that they disagreed with, and they could kind of consider, that doesn't happen anymore. Now, a fault. No. So someone will say to me, I want everything done for my mother. And, and I've learned that the, the more you disagree with somebody, the more the disagreement, the more they dig their heels in. Yeah. And so if somebody says black and I say white, and they say black, and I say white, and they say black, and I say black. The disagreement ends. Yeah. So someone will say, I want everything done for my mother. And my response is, well, of course you do. You're such a loving, caring daughter, mm -hmm. period, pause. Help me understand what you mean when you say everything. Mm -hmm. and they have no idea what yeah. they, they, they are unable to articulate what, but they thought they should say that because they loved their mother. Yeah. What they really meant when they said it was, I, I love my mother so much and I don't know how to handle right. this experience. I've only got one mother. Right. I have no practice in having a mother die. Can you help me? But that's not what she said. She said, I want everything done. And only when I agreed with her and flattered her for that stance and then asked her to clarify it, was she able to sort of soften and open and explore with some curiosity and open-mindedness what that might mean. And I said, what if it means that we do something that might prolong her life, but cause greater distress and greater pain and reduce quality of life. Well, I wouldn't want that. And what if she can't breathe? Would you want her to be on a breathing machine? Well, yes. I said, let me finish the sentence. Would you want her to be on a ventilator, a breathing machine? if that meant that A, she would not be able to speak because there would be a tube down her throat, and B, that most likely because of the discomfort of that, she would be restrained, either pharmacologically dropped into a semi-comatose state or actually have her arms, hands tied to the bed rails. <gasps> well, of course I wouldn't want that. So as the conversation started with, I want everything done, as people become aware of what everything really entails, yeah. they suddenly go, oh my God, no, I would never want that.
And, and that dovetails into the idea of there's such a focus these days on completing advanced directives. What do you want in terms of interventions at the end of life and what do you not want? Do you want to be hospitalized? Do you want to be on a ventilator? Do you want a feeding tube? Do you want IV antibiotics? Do you want dialysis? Do you... But if people don't know what those words, those treatments entail, yes. then how can they make an informed decision about whether they want them or not? They're just it, it, going on an image of what they think. Oh, the machine breathes. Yes. Yeah. They don't realize, oh. The impact that it is having, yeah. Tied to the bed rails. Right. So. Yeah, and you know, the other thing, uh, too, as well, is if somebody has actually, you know, uh, made the decision beforehand, you know, um, what is the terminology where it is, um, you know, do not extend my life, do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate uh, or allow a natural death. Right. So, you know, you may have that, that you know, I've made that choice to do that and the family go, no, 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 I don't want that. You've got to save them. And then now, of course, you have to talk them in through, again, what you've just said. You know, they didn't want to have that suffering, but they didn't want you to see that suffering. And that's the reason why they made that choice. So again, it's, we, we live in the moment of fear of it's my duty to prolong their life. It's my duty to make sure they're not suffering because that's as a child what you want to do. Um, but understanding that sometimes letting go, letting that person go on their own terms, letting it go when it is their time to go with loving energy with being able to say what you need to say at the end of those days, compassionately and lovingly, um, you know, is the greatest gift that you can give somebody that is crossing over. Yeah. yeah. But it's hard on the person who's letting go. Yeah. And those left behind. I, yes. Just writing, um, I'm working on stories for my second book. My first one is called Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying. And it's a set of standalone stories, each of which illustrates a tool for co-journeying with people who are dying. Mm -hmm. And now I'm working on volume two, the sec second one of that. And I, and I just told a very sweet story. I was working in hospice and, um, and we had a, a very, a very famous celebrity that was on the service, dying with lung cancer, lived in a beautiful historical building in West Hollywood, California, two-story apartment that was absolutely gorgeous in this old, old, old Spanish building. And um, Paul, that his, his husband called and said, <clears throat> it looks like, it's changing and I think we're getting close. So I called the chaplain and the chaplain picked me up and we rushed into West Hollywood, but it was a Saturday night and mm -hmm. the traffic was insane and we couldn't find parking and we didn't want to park by a hydrant and get towed. And we went up the hill to Sunset Boulevard and just before we got to Sunset, we saw the parking lot for the body shop, which was an all nude strip club. <laughs> And the chaplain's driving and it's like, let's just pay the money because we're not going to find a place. So we park in there $25 and we walk down the hill and we spent hours and, and the man died very tenderly, very gently, very sweetly. 
And we waited for the mortuary to come and remove the body. And then it was about four in the morning and we left and we walked back up the hill to the parking lot and the club closed at 4 a.m. And so all the strippers were coming out into the parking lot to get in their cars just as we were going into the parking lot to get ours. And they started kind of flirting with us and joking and who are you? You weren't in the club and they knew. And we said, oh, well, uh, I'm a hospice nurse and this is our hospice chaplain. There was a death and no parking. And, and they immediately gathered around us and started telling stories mm. of deaths that they had experienced of loved ones that were tender deaths or really rugged deaths and that were tear filled or just heartwarming. And they all had stories and suddenly we weren't a chaplain and strippers mm. and a nurse. We were just a group of human beings. Yeah. You know, with our hearts connected, sewn together by the shared human experiences of grief and being humbled by having been present in that moment and, and, and knowing kind of intuitively, not religiously, but at a core spiritual level that that place where life and death meet is filled with God. Yes. And, it, and, you know, they have all their makeup on and the chaplain was in his little collar and stuff and I've got my stethoscope, but all those trappings became irrelevant. Yeah compared to just the humanity and the yeah. connection of our humanity. We're all connected. You know, we're all going to be born. We're all going to die. And it's what we do in between. And, you know, stepping into humanity, stepping into caring and respecting and loving one another is where we need to be today. We need to raise those loving vibrations. You know, you hit on a very big point, sound bites. You know, I, I get, well, you know, um, how long are your shows? You know, an hour or more, depending on the subject. Oh, I haven't got time for that. Well, if you haven't got time to hear the wisdom, you're not ready for the content. You don't get things in sound bites. You don't, it's like reading the front of the book and the last page. What about the whole story in between? And that's the thing about, I think, what's wrong with society in many, many ways today is the fact that everything is, I want it now. I want a solution now. I want it fixed now. And they don't take the time to actually understand the journey, the different chapters of our lives, the different levels, the ups and downs, the what we become, that life is a process. And that for some people, saying goodbye, leaving this planet is perfectly okay. They've lived their chapters in their, in their book. They're happy with their story. They now know it's time to go home. All they want is your love by their side as they do that. and that is a beautiful death when we can give that to someone and saying, you know, your life was worth living. You can let go of it now. You can let go of this vessel because we know the spirit, the soul goes on. It's just the vessel that is dying. But for those that are left behind, I think that's the hardest. For the people that, that ascend, they're okay. They're in safe hands. It's for the people that's left behind. And I always say to people, dive into the memories. Even if they make you cry, if they make you laugh, if you become a blubbering idiot, it doesn't matter. Dive into those memories, feel them, feel them, feel the joy of the person that that person has meant in your life. Hold on to those wonderful memories. I heard a horrible story of 
a twin dying at six and a half. And they destroyed all the pictures and every memory of her. And her brother was born 12 years later and has never known the, that, he, that he had another sister. Oh no, out of sight, out of mind, we won't know. A, I think it's disrespectful to life, but it's also how does that help you go through the grieving? How does that help you deal with the loss? We're going to have loss in life. That's part of life. But what did we gain from the person while they were here? And that's what you need to hold on to. There's a very, I have a dear friend, John James, who I think 39 years ago in West Hollywood, California, started something called the Grief Recovery, uppercase G, uppercase R, Grief Recovery Program that he created because he had an infant die. And when he went looking for help, Mm -hmm. he couldn't find any. And, and he'd walk into support groups and they'd say, we're so glad you're here and we know you will never get over this loss. And, and his thought was, <laughs> why am I here? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and he found people in those groups that were been there six, seven, eight years and were still telling the same story. Yeah. And they had taken on that identity of the victim. Yeah. So he created a program that started in West Hollywood. Today, it's in Australia and New Zealand, all of North and Central America, Scandinavia, UK, Western Europe, and Africa. And it's called the Grief Recovery Program. And it is so amazingly accessible, effective. It is not a support group where you sit and simply talk about feelings. It is a set of 16 steps that you do in seven meetings with a grief recovery specialist that takes you through a process that leads to real recovery and lasting and meaningful transformation and re-engagement. And the fact that in 40 short years, it's gone worldwide mm. shows the need well yeah and the people i've taken through that process have been so grateful and really talk about the how transformational it is so i'm so grateful that i have the tools not only to co-journey with the dying to address the uh, spiritual physical and emotional suffering of the dying but to then work with the families afterward that are grieving, whether it's the, the loss of that's death related or an internal loss of faith or dignity or self-respect or spontaneity or playfulness or hope or an external loss, a divorce, a career, uh, some kind of injury, career changing uh, event. All of those losses fit with the grief recovery model. And and I'm so grateful I got trained in that in addition to the hospice and palliative care work that I do. You know, the the word guilt comes to mind where, especially if it's a spouse or somebody who has lost a child. I've interviewed quite a number of people who have lost their children, which personally I don't ever want to even try and identify with. But, The guilt of being happy, the guilt of moving on and finding joy again, because they're not here to have it. Um, I've had friends who've lost their child and the guilt of of being happy or even being joyous with their other children, the guilt of everyone still being alive and that child gone. 
how do you deal with the guilt? Because so many people do feel guilty that they survived when some, and especially when it's affected either it's a spouse or a child. Yeah. I, I in my experience, people tend to think of themselves and the person who died in very polar black and white terms. They were her, my wife was the most, she was a saint. She was the most perfect woman that, you know, or my child was so angelic and I never, never once picked their nose, never had a, you know, or they were the biggest, meanest, crudest, mm -hmm. most horrible, selfish lout that ever walked the planet. That we make them a devil or angel. And, right. and it's unrealistic. And the truth is that our experiences, there's so much that has gone undelivered in terms of not just saying I love you, but to say I'm so sorry that I dot, 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 and I forgive you for dot, dot, dot. And I don't know if I ever said how proud I was when you dot, or that how much I appreciated the way you always, so many of those communications have gone undelivered. Yes. And then when you think of somebody as all all good or all bad, even if you've delivered half of the communication, the other half has gone undelivered. So grief recovery provides the tools to really look at that and to address the idea of guilt and was, was there some intentional behavior in which you engaged or fail to engage that led to the death. Because if not, then guilt may not be what the real emotion is. Mm -hmm. Because guilt is over having done something or having failed to do something intentionally. Yeah. Well, you get it a lot where people say, oh, you know, our last words where we had an argument, you know, and that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And, you know, um, as a very spiritual person, it's, I do believe that although the body has gone, the spirit is around for a while, most of the time will be around their loved ones to help them through the process as well. You can still speak to them. You can still say, I'm sorry, or this is what I want to say. It's the body that's gone. You know, I do believe the spirit still hears and still is connected. So if you have unfinished business or there's things that you wanted to say or things, somebody was taken from you suddenly and you didn't get that chance to say goodbye, you can still do it. You can still say goodbye and you, you'll get a sign. You'll get some sort of response, you know, and, and be open to receiving it in whichever way it comes. But you will, even that ex, you know, exhaling of breath and feeling better, can be the response that is given to you to know that that has been connected, that has been reached. We've got to think a little also beyond that we're not just, you know, matter. This is a vessel that our spirit and soul is given while we're here on earth, that the soul and the spirit goes on, um, onto other lifetimes or goes on and sometimes sticks around. So don't keep the hate alive, keep the love alive. But if there's something you need to say, say it. Don't bottle it up inside of you, right? Yeah. One of the, the steps in the grief recovery process is a letter, and it is not a goodbye letter. Mm -hmm. It is a completion letter. It's completing all of those previously undelivered mm -hmm. 
significant emotional statements on either side of the line about the good experiences, the wonderful time, or the negative ones, and offering forgiveness or apology if it was something negative, offering appreciation and thanks and love for the things that were positive. But it's a completion letter, not a goodbye letter. It's very, very subtle, but very crucial and important difference. You know, as we said earlier, that person's a part of you. How can it be goodbye? They're immersed within your psyche now. No matter what you do or where you go from now, a part of you from the time that you had with them, that you love them, will always be a part of you, an ingredient of you. So, you know, no, don't say goodbye. It, you know, it's au revoir for now. Yeah. And, and then move on with life. It's... Um, <laughs> The, I had on here a wonderful person who's a deaf midwife and uh, deaf midwives have been around just as long as, as birthing midwives. Um, although we don't hear much about it because they wanted to change the dialogue of it, but she helps people who, who die at home. She helps um, the family, you know, wash and prepare and, and, um, and, you know, before they're rushed off and a chance to go and speak to them, a chance to, to, to say the things they need to do, a chance to grieve and let go with that body still there. Now, of course, not everybody can do that, um, you know, physically in a home or, you know, maybe can handle that. But it's also another lovely option of, you know, not that one moment they're alive, the next moment they're gone, the bed is empty. You know, a, a process of being able to say goodbye mm-hmm. and a, a process of being able to kind of say what you want to say. It's very important, isn't it? It's like being caught in mid-sentence when somebody passes over without you being there or without being able to, to, to say those things. And it's, it's unfinished business that needs to be spoken. Yeah. And it's, again, it comes back to that idea of the disposable yeah. society. It's like, okay, they died. Uh, how quickly is the mortuary going to get here? Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you make the call? Because we want, we want to get this. You know, and there's that and the part of some families of even though they're grieving, it's like, yeah, let's get this body out of here. We yeah, let's go next next event. But it's also a superstition sometimes too of having a body around, isn't it? You know, some people, oh, I'm just uncomfortable, there's a dead body here. You know, um, they don't see it as the person anymore. Well you know yeah, and that's true even before the death. Well, yeah. what we see is that seventy five to eighty percent of American adults say, I want to die at home, mm-hmm. 20 to 25% get to. But if 75 to 80% say, I want to, then the arithmetic says 20 to 25% don't want to die at home. Mm-hmm. And when you ask why, it may be, well, my 50-year-old son is a drug addict and he'll come steal the morphine and I'll lay <laughs> in agony. Or... Uh, I don't want family members changing my diapers. I want it done by professionals. That's not the relationship. I don't want to be seen that I'll be a burden for my, but some people say, I'm afraid I'll haunt the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to live in this house knowing that I, somebody died. I died in that room. And there's a real sense of, not wanting to die at home 
by some people because of those reasons. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, with the amount of people that have been on this earth since the beginning of time, there's probably not a square inch that somebody hasn't died on. So, you know, that residual energy is always there somewhere, you right. know. Um, but I understand for, you know, um, when, when my dad passed over, I was 11. And I've always been a very spiritual person. So when my mom told me, the first thought was, thank God he's out of pain because he had several heart attacks in a row. He was in a lot of pain and suffering and he was at home. And then I felt guilty. Oh gosh, how can I feel that and forced some tears. And then my mom went off and I opened the door to my dad's room and said, goodbye, I can't come to you now. And I went to my mom and just said, mom, uh, God took the one that was the weakest and left the one that was the strongest. And two nights later, I am sleeping in the bed that my dad passed over and he came to me. And um, as for me, that's happened a lot in my life. And it's like I said, I can't, I can't now. I know you're with me, but I can't now. And I'm 11, you know, I'm 11 going through all of this. But death has never been something I've been afraid of because for me, it's just a transition out of body that the spirit and the soul lives on i think more the fear for people is how they're dying you know as you said in that first story the person i must suffer i must have pain to you know to um wipe out whatever i've done in life nobody wants to see their loved ones in suffering when they're dying and nobody wants to go through suffering when they're dying so i think that really is more the fear than the actual death itself yeah, I don't think so. No? <laughs> uh, uh, and the reason I say that is we've gotten really good at pain, end of life mm. pain management. Yeah. Not great at <laughs> migraine pain management. Right. Yeah. But in end of life pain management, particularly when it's cancer related, we have an arsenal, military term, mm -hmm. of tools with which to address that pain and we can keep people comfortable. My wife died here in our home, in my arms, on hospice with pancreatic cancer. She was ambulatory to within 16 hours of her death. And even with pancreatic cancer, she was so comfortable. Mm. So that's not the issue. When we look at Oregon, and, and because they've kept such meticulous records for over 20 years on their medic physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying, you would think, well, the biggest reason people do that is they're afraid of pain at the end. That's, I think, the sixth really? big issue. It's six down from the top. And the biggest issues are um, losing control, losing mm -hmm. autonomy and control of my life or of my body. I don't want to become incontinent and have someone that I've had a romantic, sexual, intimate relationship with for 40 or 50 or 60 years, changing my diaper. That's right. not, I don't want to lose quality of life. Mm -hmm. So those are the big issues, dignity, control, autonomy, quality of life. Not being able to make choices for oneself. Off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then underneath those five, is pain. Hmm. What we see again and again in, in the Oregon statistics, and California's mirroring it, but they're only a couple years, I think three years of numbers in California, but in Oregon, it's 21 or 22 years. 
we see that there are a certain number of people who go and talk to their doctor about this. And then of those, a smaller group actually gets the prescription for the medication that they can use to end their life. And of those people, a smaller percentage actually ever fill the prescription. And of those that fill it, there's only a small percentage that ever use it. But there seems to be great comfort in having the conversation, in getting the prescription. If it gets bad, if things get out of control, I'll get this filled, or they get it filled, and it's like, if it gets bad, yeah. then I'll take this. And, and, and it's a minority in each case, each step down, it's less than half of the people who engage in this step take the next step. And then less than half of those take the next. So even when they get the prescription filled and they have the medication, fewer than half of the people who did that actually end up taking it. So it gives them a sense of control. I now have some control over what's going to happen to me. It's kind of like the one bullet in the gun, isn't it? You know, yeah. they're coming to get me. I'm not going to let them get me. You yeah. know, I, I will shoot myself before they do. And it's always, can you pull that trigger? That's the question when it comes to it. But then the choice is there. And that's the thing. The choice is there. And I think that's where the dignity is, is giving people that choice that to end things on their terms, you know, if they have the courage and when they're ready. And we need to honor that. Um, we're all going to go at some point. This is, you know, part of life. Um, and it's what we do with our lives in the meantime that really counts and stepping into purpose, you know, stepping into service, stepping into, into caring for humanity, kindness and love is really the ingredients that we need to see in the pot. But sending people off with grace and dignity uh, and respect and kindness and love, I think is the greatest gift that you can give someone in showing respect for them and showing love for them. And, uh, and also in, um, I, I think in part of the process of your own grieving, of knowing that you had that goodbye, if you have the opportunity to do so. So it's part of the recovery on yourself, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think you and I spoke about this before this broadcast, before this interview, but the idea that people, for the most part, die very consistently with how they've lived <laughs> yes. as adults. So people who are very... Uh, much worry warts and timid, fearful, nervous people often die with tremendous fear about what's happening. And people that have been aggressive, bullying, mean, insensitive people tend to die pretty angry and bitter and often alone. And people who have been more curious, um, softer, kinder, uh, feeling more a part of rather than an island, mm -hmm. tend to have much more tender and gentle deaths. And there are exceptions, of course, in every one of those avenues. There are transformational experiences, but they're pretty rare. It's much more common for someone to die consistently with mm -hmm. how they've lived. And they can be angry and bitter and mean right up till the yeah. last 
breath or terrified, absolute terror about what's happening or have a very gentle and tender. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, comes down to, you know, how we've lived, you know, um, yeah, we did have that conversation. I remember having this conversation with my, my sister as a mother many years ago is that whatever we're dealing with in life that's caused us pain, that causes sorrow, we need to deal with in our lifetime. We don't want to take it with us um, and we don't want to have it on our deathbed. So, you know, resolve your issues resolve let go of any regrets or or judgments or forgive people because that will give you a more peaceful exit don't otherwise that you are going to be why am i dying and that person's still living and why are you putting yourself through that in your process of crossing over so you know clean it all up before you get to the end there and then you will have more of a peaceful death yeah how we do anything is how we do everything right and the person who's saying, why me at the end? Yeah. Why, why did I get this cancer? Is probably the person who said that about the promotion, mm -hmm. and who said that about the person who won the lottery. Why didn't I win the lottery? Mm -hmm. And the person, that's just their yeah. orientation to life. Life is unfair and I'm getting the short end of the stick again. Right. And it's like, that's a hard way to live, it's let alone to die. I mean, you're talking about sadness. You're in sadness. You've never seen the joy. You've never seen, you know, the, the, the exuberance of life. You know, um, I'm sure you've seen every kind of death there is out there. But seeing somebody who crosses over in, in almost the joy, I have loved the life I've lived and I can go with that joy. That must be such a, a gift to you to see that because I'm sure it's not the norm. Yeah. I love the story of the identical twins who have journeyed together their entire life and they're now approaching that time of transition and they're fighting. And mm -hmm. the one is saying, I'm terrified because I know, I know there's nothing out there but darkness and cold and emptiness. And the other one is saying, you're crazy. It's going to be bright and light and warm with nothing but exciting opportunities. And they're back and forth. And suddenly they're interrupted. Their bickering is interrupted by a baritone voice that says, push, push. And the first one is ushered down the birth canal and born into this world. Right. And, then, and, and it's like they, in the womb, they were arguing about whether it's going to, and whatever they believe is probably going to come true for the one who believes yeah. there's nothing and it's dark. They're going to have a rugged life yeah. and everything's going to seem unfair. And the other one will live in great joy and gratitude yeah. because that's, yeah. Outlook, kind of like that Henry Ford statement about whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. Yes. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like I, everything is perception. Yes. How you approach it. Yeah, exactly. It's all about, you know, I interviewed a 10 year old who written a book on 365 days of gratitude with a positive attitude. We know which birth canal she came down yeah. and, and she chose, she said, look, if you're doing something that makes you unhappy, why continue to do it? Go and find something that makes you happy. But again, it comes down to that perception. You know, I'm old a life. You know, it's always happening to me because, um, 
go and be what you want to receive water and seed what you want to receive be the person that you want to be so everything is down to choice down to perception how we come in how we live our lives we can't choose what happens to us like the beginning of your life but the choice of what you did with it and what you became of it and how you've helped other people was your choice you saw the path in front of you you saw the calling you took that path because you knew that you had been given a gift even though it had been very painful to understand the grief and the suffering of others so that you can help them through it so yeah. the suffering became a gift and we think about it in life life is not an easy ride however we come up with technology we're going to have bumps and grinds we're going to have roller coasters we're going to have pitfalls and rises again it's how often do we get up how often do we believe there's more how often do we believe we're more and that we can do more and it really comes down to choice yeah, absolutely absolutely so tell us how we can get hold of your book when is the second book coming up I don't have a release date. I haven't finished the second book, so I don't have a release date. The first book is Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's at Amazon. G.J. Westbrook, that's me. I'm the author. And um, you can find it at either of those venues, Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying. Um, people can email me at compassionate journey at hotmail. They can look for me on Facebook at Jay Westbrook. I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy to find. No site, just, uh, the social medias and the email. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you know, this is a great gift to actually give someone that, you know, you know, we're all getting up there, you know, I'm about to turn 65. The numbers are getting up there. I'm going over to England to celebrate birthdays of 70th of my brother, 78th of my sister. And we've nearly lost her a few times and she keeps coming back. You know, she's like that ever ready bunny keeps on going. But so many people are afraid of that ending. And when you hear the stories of the people that struggled or fought against it, the people that gave into it, the people that embraced it, it can help us when it comes to our time to actually look at what am I truly afraid of? Who do I want around me? What are the terms that I want to go in and empower us? Most of the time we're scared because we don't know. So by reading this book and hearing the other stories, it's going to enlighten you. It's going to warm your heart and it's going to help you when it comes to that time and your family to actually understand how you want to go. And we're all going to go at some point, right? You know, and by grace, we would love to go peacefully, lovingly, and well, obviously without pain. That's how we would all like to go. But yeah. that's... Um, I think this, yeah. this book has the power to really help with that. Mm. It's not academic. You can no. do this with someone who's dying, with family, physicians or student physicians, nurses, chaplains, and all benefit from it. And it's stories. And right. we learn... Yes. Through the, through the thousands of years of our history, we learn best through storytelling. Absolutely. Not from information. No. So all of these tools are just short stories, each chapter illustrating an amazing tool for co-journey. Right. 
And as I said, we're all going to go at some point. Yeah. You're going to, you, you know, you yourself, if you're anxious, if you're young and you've got a loved one, you know, parent that, or grandparent that you know, the time is ticking. It's going to happen one day. And you're anxious about it. You know, as my son, he was with me when we, we let go of my dog. Um, he cooked her a beautiful steak dinner. We gave her ice cream. And then the vet came. We were both holding her and loving her as, as he gave her the injection. And it was a beautiful death. And he said he watched me because it was the first time he'd been around. He'd lost many friends in many ways. But first time he'd been around seeing a death. And he watched me to see how I coped with it so I was the gauge and as I said death is not what I'm afraid of it's the loss of having that somebody there again and um, and I know he's going to have a hard time down the road so a gift like this for him would be good because it's not oh I don't want that it's so, it so sounds so dreary or sounds so miserable it's not is it it's beautiful stories factual stories it's preparation for us so that when we do come across that crossroads and we're all going to at some point we are prepared for it and that's the greatest gift you can give someone the preparation there can be, there can be great humor in it the yeah. that story i told earlier about <clears throat> the chaplain ending up having to turn into the hospice owners the receipt for a $25 parking fee for the body shop all new group club. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't in the club. I was, it was, it gave us all quite a laugh. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, you know, there could be somebody dying in the, in the club, right? Who knows? Everybody goes. Thank you for following this journey. I know it was a rocky start for you, but thank you for following this. It was your calling. I'm glad you received it. I'm glad that you followed through with it. It's not something that's talked about enough. It's, again, that taboo subject. Um, my ex-husband um, is Chinese, and his family wouldn't even write a will because they thought if they wrote a will, that was inviting death. Right. You know, there's so many things that are in the way that if we just took away the fear, if we took away the lack of knowledge and just understood better we wouldn't be so fearful we would be more embracing and we, we would be there more for each other because we have the understanding of the tools and to understand if somebody is going through grief don't judge them because you've got over it quicker maybe you haven't maybe you're in denial if somebody needs help they need to reach out to someone like you who can help them through the process and that's what it's about being there for each other and everybody's going to go through the process in their own time yeah People are welcome to reach out to me. I can put them in touch with a grief recovery specialist almost anywhere in the world. Not everywhere, but almost everywhere. And, uh, and I'm always welcome to welcome people to reach out to me if they're struggling with how to proceed with the impending death of a, of a loved one. And we can, we can hook them up with a hospice or palliative care specialist in their area or I can help over the phone, but, but I'm available to people. I've got two friends right now who mothers are in hospice mm. and, uh, yeah, and their lives are completely on hold. And, you know, we, we know that there's going to be the repercussions and the strain and the everything else, even on the after effect. And, you know, I think reading your book is just, the, actually, before we go, I do want to address this. How many people ignore other people when they've had loss because they don't know what to say? huge number three things either they ignore them mm -hmm. or they feel i have to say something 
And so they say things that are well-intended, but usually harmful. Mm -hmm. I know exactly how you feel. No, you really don't. Mm -hmm. Or the minimizing statements. Be glad you had him so long. Be glad you're young enough to have another child. Right. As though they're completely interchangeable. One dies, you just Mm -hmm. have another one. I mean, well-intended but not helpful. Or they tell the truth, which is to say something like, I can't imagine how difficult this must be for you. I can't imagine what this feels like for you, but I want you to know I'm here for you. Something like that helps so much more than I know exactly how you feel. Yeah, it's permission for them to be in that grieving process, it's support. I'm there for you whenever you need me. Do not be afraid to reach out to me, even if you just want to speak and have a friendly ear. And that's the importance. Some people just need to speak and let it out. Some people need to know you're just there for them vibrationally, but they also need to know that it's okay for them to go through this. They haven't got to snap out of it, pull up your big girl socks. Uh, you know, that you're allowing the person to go through that grieving process on their terms. And you're honoring the uniqueness and the enormity of the emotion. Yeah. When you say, oh my God, your mother died in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, so did mine. I know exactly how you feel. It takes away the uniqueness yes. and the magnitude of the emotion. Yeah. That person is experiencing yeah and it's not true you don't know so just tell the truth i can't imagine what this must be like for you yeah yeah you could stop right there right yeah yeah exactly compassion the big word right we need that in every aspect of our lives let's have a little more compassion for each other right at the beginning all through our lives right through to the end And if we actually stepped into compassion, patience, respect, love, we would actually see a much kinder world, people exiting far more peacefully, people living far more gratefully. So I think compassion most certainly can be stepped up on. I think we can all dig deep inside of ourselves and bring out more compassion within us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jay, for sharing with us. Um, It's so, so glad for the opportunity. And uh, I'm so glad there's somebody out there like you that's doing this, that has written about it so other people can actually understand, you know, what to go through. We're all going to lose someone. We're all going to go at some point. This is not something we can avoid. And the more we understand about it, the more we step into that compassion and understanding what to say, how to act, um, how to prepare for our own exit, how to even prepare our family for our exit. You know, this big taboo. No, I don't want to talk about your death. Yes, I do. I want to talk. I've already told my kids, my ashes are going into a tree. Plant me as a willow tree. I already know. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's, your, your death is inevitable. It doesn't mean you're hurrying it on. It just means you're facing it so that you're diffusing any choices they have to do. Right? And it helps them go through that process at the time because they're honoring what you want. So... Yeah. Talk about it, folks. Stop shying away from it. Be open, explore, read the book, communicate with one another, and then be out there for each other with compassion. And it make the passing a lot better, make living a lot better too. 
compassion and curiosity. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see. Oh, yeah. What's next, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah. And you know, when we cross over, it's what's next. The spirit and the soul is, oh, am I coming back or where am I going now? <laughs> so, you know, this is just the vessel, right? Um, again, your email, one more time for people. Compassionatejourney at hotmail.com. Compassionatejourney at hotmail.com. And Compassionate Journey on Facebook. Uh, no, on Facebook, it's just Jay Westbrook. Okay, great. Both of those will be on the posting, both of them here on YouTube. For those that are audio, please go and, uh, and look at the posting here. Just put in his name on selfdiscoverymedia.com. Uh, you can order the book directly from there straight to Amazon. And this is a book that should be read. The family should read it. You should read it so you know how to be more compassionate towards people. We learn from other people's experiences and we become more exper experienced through going through that process. So don't be afraid of it. So Jay, thank you so much. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Until next time, folks, remember, there's always an ending, but it's what you do in the meantime and how you exit can be your choice. So until next time, bye for now. We hope that you enjoyed the show and were inspired to come and visit us at selfdiscoverymedia.com and see what other shows we have for you. And please do visit our selfdiscoverycommunity.org and see how you can be a part of giving back. Thank you very much.